0: Let's pray. Dear Lord, your word says in Acts 4 verse 12 that there is salvation and no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And Lord, we know that that name is the name Jesus Christ, that he is the only way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Lord, Jesus is... Alone, our salvation. And Father, we pray that um, today each heart that is present would affirm that not only mentally as a fact, Lord, but uh, wholeheartedly, um, that we are those who acknowledge Him as our Lord and our Savior, that we are those who desire to follow Him instead of to uh, follow our own uh, sinful lusts, Lord. May we, each one of us here this morning, uh, be those who are fully committed to following him to the very end because of who he is. Because we recognize that he alone is worthy of our worship and of our lives. And Lord, we pray that through your word this morning, you would... um, secure for yourself each heart that is here this morning those of us that already know you may we become even more committed to you even more devoted to you lord even more set apart uh, unto your service and lord any who are here who do not know you may you open their eyes Uh, lord only you can do that Um, there's nothing i can say up here that can take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Only you can do that. And Lord, we pray that, that you would do that this morning by your spirit, through your word, Lord, that you would save any who are here who might not know you, that you would bring them to faith, Lord, that you'd open their eyes to see who Jesus is. And I pray you would bless uh, the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in First Corinthians chapter 8. And we're only looking at the first three verses because these three verses are foundational to the next three chapters, 8, 9, and 10. So we're just going to take a little bit of extended time on these three verses. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'm going to read those first three verses for you. Paul writes, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Knowledge is like a hammer. In and of itself, it cannot do anything. Hammers can't swing themselves. But knowledge, like a hammer, In the hands of a prideful, self-interested person, that hammer of knowledge is used to beat others over the head. It's used to bully. It's used to impress people. It's used to belittle people. In the hands of the prideful knowledge, the hammer of knowledge, is often used to demolish and dismantle people. But in the hands of a loving, selfless person, that hammer of knowledge is used instead to build others up, to repair what has been broken down within them, and at times to defend them from destructive lies. So what is done with knowledge depends upon the person who is wielding that knowledge. The Corinthian believers had a lot of knowledge. Paul said as much back in chapter 1, of 1st Corinthians chapter 1 verses 4 through 5 as he was giving thanks to God for what God had accomplished in these believers he said there I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge so these believers had a lot of knowledge that was given to them by the Lord They had a lot of knowledge, but the problem with them was they also had a lot of pride. In chapter 5, verse 2, Paul said of these believers, you have become arrogant, or you have become puffed up. When we come to chapters 8 through 10, we find that due to these believers' pride, due to their pride, the knowledge that the Corinthians possessed Instead of being a constructive force for good, it has become a destructive force for evil because the knowledge that they have is being wielded by prideful people. All that these believers were concerned about was what they felt they were free to do and they were using their knowledge to justify what they were doing. They didn't care about bringing glory to God. They didn't care about being a good witness to unbelievers. They didn't care about building up their brothers and sisters in Christ. All they cared about was their freedom, doing what they wanted to do, and they were using their knowledge to justify what they wanted to do. And Paul is writing to correct that within them. And we can also fall into that kind of behavior. And so this passage These first three verses that we're looking at this morning will help us to swing the hammer of knowledge in a way that builds others up rather than in a way that swells our heads up and tears others down. These three verses will give us three truths about love and knowledge that will keep us humble. And these three truths will also enable us to serve one another selflessly. So let's look at the first truth. The first truth we find in verse 1. And that truth is this. Love makes knowledge useful. Love makes knowledge useful. Paul begins verse 1 by saying, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Apparently, Paul is beginning to address another topic that came up in the Corinthians letter to him. If you remember back in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul said, Now concerning the things, plural, concerning the things about which you wrote. They wrote him about a number of things. And a couple of those things we saw in chapter 7. And when we come to chapter 8, and Paul says that phrase again, now concerning, it seems to indicate that this is another one of those things that came up in their letter to him. And the issue that he's addressing now is the issue of food that has been sacrificed to idols, and the eating of that food. But before Paul gets into the particulars of that issue, he first wants to lay down a principle. Just as in chapter 7, there was a principle that was undergirding and guiding everything Paul said. Remember what that principle was? Remain as you are. That was a thread throughout the whole of chapter 7. So here in chapter 8, Paul is laying down a principle in the first three verses that will undergird and guide everything he has to say in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 because these next three chapters are all about this issue. And this principle underlies everything that Paul has to say to them about it. And that principle is this. Knowledge puffs up but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So to begin, in verse 1, Paul says, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. We know that we all have knowledge. Paul here is acknowledging that what the Corinthians know to be true is in fact true. And what that knowledge is, he'll review in verses 4 through 6. And Lord willing, we'll look at that next week, what they know to be true. He's not getting into the specifics yet, but there is something they know to be true. And Paul acknowledges, yeah, you're right about that. That's true. But he's also driving home the point that the knowledge the Corinthians are taking pride in is actually common knowledge. We know that we all have this knowledge, Paul says. The Corinthian believers don't own the market on this knowledge that they are boasting in and that they're not afraid to bludgeon one another over the head with. A lot of times we can become prideful in the knowledge we have obtained and we revel in the fact that I know it and somebody else doesn't. But then our heads get popped, deflated when someone comes along and says, you know, actually, a lot of people already knew that. You're actually late to the party on that. You're not as smart as you think you are. That always pops our balloon heads when we find that out. And Paul seems to be popping balloon heads again here. He says, we all know this. Yes, you know what you say you know is true, but we all know this. You're right about the facts when it comes to food, sacrifice to idols, but you're not the only ones who know these things. In fact... Corinthians, there's a key way in which you have actually fallen short in your understanding of these things. How have they fallen short? Look at the second half of verse 1. Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That was what the Corinthians were missing. They seemed to be missing the point of the Christian life. Our goal as Christians is not simply to know more stuff so that we can be more pleased with ourselves and show off to others. Our goal as Christians is to build one another up in likeness. It's not to build yourself up, it's to build others up. Paul is not saying here that knowledge is bad. What he's saying is that knowledge without love is useless because all it does is inflate your ego, swell your head, make you think you're something when actually you're nothing knowledge is not useful until it is paired with love why is that how is it that knowledge is not useful until it's paired with love well knowledge without love is useless because love is the only thing that will put knowledge to good use the word for love in this verse is agape Agape love. That kind of love is the kind of love that is concerned about the well-being of someone other than yourself. Agape love is concern for another, not concern for yourself. It's an others-focused love, not a self-focused love. That's why Paul says knowledge puffs up because when you love yourself, you use the knowledge for yourself and you swell your head. But when you're using that selfless love, that others-focused love, then knowledge is used to build that other person up. The Corinthians were lacking that kind of love. And that lack of love made all of their knowledge useless, that knowledge that they were so proud about. Knowledge is like a wedding ring. In and of itself, a wedding ring just sits there And if you buy a wedding ring and you put it on your own finger, it means nothing. You're just using it to elevate your own appearance. But when you buy a wedding ring for your beloved and you put that ring on your beloved in order to indicate your commitment to your beloved and to elevate their appearance, then that ring means something because it is love that put it on that finger. Love for the other, not for yourself. And that's that way with knowledge. If you accumulate knowledge only for your own benefit, all it serves to do is to make you look good in comparison with others. But if you pass on knowledge to others for the purpose of serving others and for elevating others, then knowledge means something because it's being used for the good of others rather than for yourself. So that's the first truth first truth love makes knowledge useful what's the second truth we find that in verse two and it's this knowledge without love is ignorance knowledge without love is ignorance look at verse two paul says if anyone supposes that he knows anything he has not yet known as he ought to know That word for suppose or think, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, that's used by Paul elsewhere in similar ways. And in those similar ways, it always has a negative connotation. For example, if you go back to chapter 3 and verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18. Paul says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks, there's that word again, if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Then turn over to chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 12. Paul says, Therefore let him who thinks, same word, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Again, that's a, not a negative connotation. There's something bad about what they're thinking about themselves. Then turn over to chapter 14 in verse 37. Verse 37. Paul says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual Let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. The issue there was they were practicing their gifts not in accordance with the way God intended for them to be practiced. And so Paul says, listen, if you think you're this way, make sure you follow these instructions. And then lastly, let's go to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, Paul says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So back in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, verse 2, Paul is using it in that same way. If anyone supposes, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. We get the idea that the person who thinks that he knows something is actually someone who takes pride in that knowledge. And though he is puffed up about what he knows, Paul is indicating he's really fooling himself. Such a person does not realize, as Paul says, that he has not yet known as he ought to know. He is not yet known as he ought to know. What does he not know? What is this person who is prideful about what he knows about? What does he not realize he's actually ignorant of? What does he not know? It's the principle that Paul laid down in verse 1. The person who is proud about his knowledge and has a puffed up head doesn't understand that knowledge without love puffs up, but knowledge that is used by love builds up. Because if he understood that all knowledge did, apart from love, is puff up the head, he would turn away from that prideful behavior. But because he doesn't know it, he continues in that prideful behavior. So what he doesn't know is that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You see, the key thing to know about knowledge in the Christian life is that knowledge must go hand in hand with love for it to do any good for it to be of any help to a brother or sister in Christ, for it to bring any glory to God, knowledge must be paired with love. Knowledge without love does not indicate maturity. In fact, it indicates the opposite. Knowledge without love indicates a profound level of ignorance an ignorance that can only come from sin that has not been recognized and has not been repented of. Over the past 20 years we have been learning a lot in this church. We've been getting a lot of knowledge and I want each of us to examine ourselves including myself. Where is that knowledge going? Is it piling up in our heads? giving us balloon heads, swelling our pride? Or is the knowledge that we have gained, is it being given in service to our unbelieving neighbors, our believing brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, when I say knowledge being given in service to someone, I don't simply mean regurgitating facts like a theological parrot. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean... Recognizing someone's need, recognizing a struggle they're having, recognizing a sin they're caught in, recognizing confusion that they are having to endure with seemingly no way out. And you see that, and you come alongside of them, and humbly, lovingly, you open the Scriptures with them and say, Look, this is the truth that can set you free. That's what I'm talking about. Ephesians 4, verse 29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. That's that word, building up. Only such a word as is good for building up according to the need. So it's not just running our mouth, saying everything that's in our brains that we know, but it's recognizing the need and moving to address that need with the knowledge that God has given us of his word. Only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. It's not speaking a word so that it will give glory to me. It's speaking a word so that it will give grace to the person who needs to hear it. So is that how we are using our knowledge? Are we using it to give grace to others, or are we using it to serve ourselves and to show off? So that's the second truth knowledge without love is ignorance that brings us to the third and final truth love reveals god's knowledge of us love reveals god's knowledge of us and that we see in verse three let me read verse two again heading into verse three if anyone supposes that he knows anything he is not yet known as he ought to know but If anyone loves God, he is known by him. Paul wants to humble these believers. He wants them to value what truly matters. It's very similar to what Jesus said to the 70 disciples that he sent out. Uh, Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. What Paul is doing here in verse 3 is very similar to what Jesus did in Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> in chapter 10 verses 1 through 16 remember Jesus sent 70 of his disciples in pairs to go before him to various cities to prepare for him to come and he sent them to, to go and to preach and he gave them authority over demons to drive out demons authority um, if I remember correctly to heal And these 70 come back. And we see them come back in verse 17. And it says this, Luke 10, verse 17, The 70 returned with joy. Now what were they rejoicing over? Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So what they're rejoicing over is the effectiveness that their ministry had. That's what they're rejoicing over. Now look at how Jesus responds, verse 18. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. He sent the 12 out on a mission like that. And who was one of the 12? Judas. So you see, it's very easy to deceive yourself if you're rejoicing in the effectiveness of your ministry. No doubt Judas, along with the other 12, was doing what? Driving out demons and healing. But for him to rejoice in that would have been a great act of self deception because Judas's name was not written in heaven. We cannot put our hope in the fruits of our ministry. Balaam had a very effective ministry. He blessed Israel and Israel was blessed, but Balaam was a false prophet. Don't rejoice in your ministry effectiveness. Don't rejoice in your knowledge of facts about God. Instead, rejoice in the fact that God knows you. That's what matters. The person who knows things and boasts in his knowledge of things but does not love God is an ignorant person. Ignorant because he's lost sight of what's important. But for the person who loves God... What he knows or does not know is of very little importance compared with the fact that God knows him. That's what's important. Just as an illustration, think of a king over a vast kingdom. That king cannot possibly know all of his subjects, yet his subjects may know all sorts of facts about that king. And when that king has a son or a daughter born to him, At first, the king's subjects know way more about the king than that newborn child knows about the king. They know his age. They know what his wardrobe is like. They know how big his kingdom is. They know the wars he's fought. They know who the members of his royal family are. At first, the child born to him doesn't know any of that. But that doesn't matter because that king knows his child intimately. It doesn't matter that the child doesn't know many facts about the king yet. All that matters is that the child is known by his father, the king. That one helpless child is more dear to that king than the millions of his subjects who know much about him but whose names the king does not know. Possessing knowledge in and of itself does not give any evidence that you are a Christian or that I am a Christian. Me preaching up here is not evidence that I am a Christian. Unbelievers can memorize and mentally affirm Christian doctrine just like believers can memorize and mentally affirm Christian doctrine. Anyone can ace a theology exam if they study hard enough. What what gives evidence that you are a Christian is love, for God. An unbeliever is utterly incapable of loving God. Listen to what Paul says regarding the unbeliever in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Paul writes, What then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. A lot of times we'll say of an unbeliever, oh, he's seeking God. Well, this verse says, no, he's not. He's seeking something, but it's not God he's seeking. fear of God before their eyes. That's the state of the unbeliever. Then look with me at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 6. Actually, let me start in verse 5. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who are according to their flesh, that's unbeliever's, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who are according to the spirit believers set their minds on the things of the spirit for the mind set on the flesh is death but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God not loving hostile for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. An unbeliever cannot love God until God gives that unbeliever a new heart to love God. There is no part of the unbeliever that has any sincere affection whatsoever for God. And that's where all of us were at some point in our lives before the Lord had mercy on us. Now, if you're a believer this morning, you may ask, Well, I think I love God, but how can I know for sure whether I love God or not? Jesus said this in John's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 15. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love God, if you love Jesus, you will keep his commandments. Not perfectly, because as believers, we still struggle with sin in this life. But there will be progress. There will be a trend that is toward obedience, toward likeness. No longer will you be making yourself comfortable in your sin, but more and more, as time goes on, you'll be turning from sin and seeking to obey the Lord Jesus. And what has Jesus commanded us? John chapter 13 John chapter 13 verses 34 through 35 Jesus says this A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another See, if we love Jesus, we'll obey his commands. He's commanded us to love our neighbor, to love our brother. So if we love Jesus, we will be loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will be loving our neighbors. Jesus loved us self-sacrificially, and that is the way he commands us to love one another, self-sacrificially. So if we truly love God, it will show up in our love for others. Only the believer is empowered to love self sacrificially, even as Jesus loved us. So that is why, back in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 3, Paul says, If anyone loves God, he is known by God. If you love God, it will show up in love for others, and that love, according to this verse, is evidence for what? It's evidence that you're saved, that God knows you. How does that work? Well, let's look closely at verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 8. The verse literally says this, If anyone loves God, he has been known by him. If anyone loves God, present tense, loves him now, he has been known by God. That's perfect tense. That's an action that has happened in the past, the results of which continue on into the present. If anyone loves God now, he has been known by God. If you love God and you love others now, it means that God has known you before now. And this knowing that Paul is talking about is not a reference to God's omniscience. God knows everyone in an omniscient sense, whether they love him or not. That's not the kind of knowing that Paul is talking about here. Instead, when God says that the believer, the one who loves God, is known by God, that's a reference to God's electing grace. His choosing you unto salvation. In Scripture, knowing someone is the language used for entering into an intimate relationship with someone. It's used to describe the relationship between a husband and his wife. Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. It's also used to describe the saving relationship between God and his people. For example, turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33, verse 17. There, that verse says, The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Everybody knows. Every, everybody You know, Moses knows God is omniscient. So for God to say, I have known you by name, if he means simply, I'm omniscient, that's no great revelation to Moses. Of course he knows his name. God knows everybody's name in that way. When he says, I have known you by name, he's talking about that saving relationship that he has with Moses. Because notice what I have known you by name is paired with. Before that, you have found what in my sight? Favor grace. Next let's go to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. This is uh, God's commissioning of Jeremiah to be his prophet. Verse 4 says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. That is an electing knowledge. How do we know that? Because before Jeremiah was even born, before he was even going through the process of being formed in his mother's womb, God already knew him. And what is that phrase, knowing Jeremiah? What are the two parallel phrases to that that first phrase? Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. This knowing of Jeremiah by God is, is... much the same as consecrating him appointing him so it's, it's electing language here and that is what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 3 your love for god and others is proof positive that god knows you savingly because Loving God and loving others in the way he commands is simply not possible apart from his choosing you, his consecrating you, his appointing you unto salvation, and enabling you to love the way he commands you to love. This is spelled out very clearly for us in 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. Starting in verse 7, the Apostle John in verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. It's not from us, it's from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. If you are a lover of God and you are loving others the way Christ has loved you, that shows that you have been born again. You have been born of God. Verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, to be that that atoning sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. If I love God and I love you sacrificially, that shows that God is in me, living in me, enabling me to love you that way. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Our Father in heaven resides within us through the person of his Holy Spirit. Verse 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. If, if, if we are loving others sacrificially, that, that promotes assurance in our hearts. That gives us confidence in the coming day of judgment because there's no way I can be that way unless God has saved me and is living inside of me. And so then I can look on that day with confidence, not confidence in myself, but confidence in the God who dwells inside of me and is changing me. He's not letting me stay the same. He's enabling me to love. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. We love because he first loved us. Our love for others comes from the God who has first loved us. We don't love God and love others in order to catch his attention and get him to save us and to get God to say, Oh, look, what a, what a good boy. Look at how hard he's trying. I'll, I'll save him. He's given it a good go. I'll save him. No. Rather, as unbelievers, we were giving no thought to God whatsoever. We hated God. Whatever we might have said with our mouths, We hated God because we were living for ourselves, not for God. But God, even when we were still sinners, he set his love upon us. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins and to rise from the dead for us. He caused us to be born again, thereby granting us repentance and faith and having believed in Him by the faith that He gave us to believe in Him, He then justified us, He adopted us, He sent His Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, and having saved us and having already secured eternal life for us, He then began enabling us through His Spirit to start loving Him and to love others. We love because He first loved us. We love as a result of him saving us. That's why Paul says, if anyone loves God, he has been known by him. Therefore, when we don't love God, shown by our lack of love for others, when we hoard knowledge and we get puffed up heads, We're living in such a way that suggests that we do not know God and he does not know us. The Corinthians had forgotten that knowledge must be paired with love for God and for others because knowledge on its own, it just puffs up, but love builds up. So the question for you and me is, do you love God? Do you love others? Are you becoming more and more focused on God and others? Or are you still obsessed with yourself? If you have never turned away from living for yourself, that's an indication that you are still dead in sin, that you're still under the wrath of God, that you're still headed for hell. You are in desperate need of a savior, and Jesus is that savior. Do you want to love the way Jesus loves? If you do, that's a sign God is working in your heart, that you would want to turn from sin and that you would want to live in a way that honors the Lord. If you want to love the way Jesus loves, then turn from your selfishness Place all of your trust in Jesus alone to save you and to rule you. If you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, he will save you. He promises all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10 says. And we are saved by the grace of Jesus. We are saved by his favor toward us that we don't deserve and we could never earn. And we receive his free gift of salvation simply by trusting in him, by embracing him, all that he is, all that the Word of God reveals him to be, as Savior and Lord. If you sincerely plead with Christ to save you, he will save you. And once he saved you, he will then enable you to start loving the way he loves. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners, not in the place of perfect people. So if you are a sinner and you don't know Christ yet, don't hesitate to come to Jesus in faith because you are exactly the kind of person Jesus died to save. He promised in John chapter 6 that whoever comes to him, he will certainly not cast out. He won't turn you away. Let's pray.